I'm your host, Annie Bowles, and this is a bonus episode of News Du Jour. It is my pleasure to introduce today Caroline Cole and Meg Applegate, co-CEOs of Unsilenced. Guys, tell us about how you two first met up and how you decided to team up. Well, thank you so much for having us here, Annie. We're I'm a huge fan. And so when you said yes, I was like, ah, score, amazing. <laughs> um, so yes, thank you for having us here. So to get into the story... Uh, Meg and I both had in our adolescence and our teen years, um, had attended like behavior modification facilities. And if you're not sure what that is, I highly recommend looking up the troubled teen industry. You may have seen it through Paris's documentary. This is Paris and, and the advocacy and activism work that has been surrounding her lately and in partnership with our organization. Uh, so Many years after our experience within the troubled teen industry, we were both brought to this space where we had the opportunity to change it and prevent anyone else from going through the experiences that we went through in these facilities, which I'm sure we will absolutely get into. Um, but that's really how we met on the online space, which is so now um, our organization on silence is completely remote. So everyone is a volunteer who lives as far as, you know, Sweden um, to, you know, all across the nation. So uh, in a nutshell, that's kind of the makeup of our org. It's kind of crazy that we've never met in person. If you think about it. Yeah. And here we are leading an organization and we've never met in person. (laughs) It is wild, but I, but you know, it's, it's funny though, because when we met, I just, I knew we had to start something together, right? Like with your background in advocacy, policy, legislation, and me and nonprofit and, and, and business development, all that stuff. It's like, well, we have to do something. Well, we're kind of the same person. We, (laughs) I think like we're twin flames. (laughs) (laughs) That day you guys finally meet is going to be such a fun day. I feel like. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I feel we might like give a hug and then just like be stuck. Like we're like, this is like, we are one we've, you know, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to back up to and get into, you know, a little bit of each of your stories. And I know that they're probably divergent stories, but um, so mm-hmm. you guys can go in whatever order you want to. But if you want to tell me a little bit about life growing up for each of you, and so we can kind of get some perspective on how you ended up doing the advocacy work you do today. Yeah, um, well, I'll go ahead and go first. Um I actually had a really typical childhood, um, but I was adopted. And so I think that with being adopted, I think that can create some issues as you're growing up, just kind of finding that sense of belongingness within your family. I had the most amazing, incredible parents and um, I was provided so many opportunities growing up and it just that typical childhood. But I think that what happened is I, I felt different as I grew up. I, I struggled to follow the rules. And I started to feel really different from my brother. You know, he always followed the rules. He didn't get in trouble. And I started feeling like I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I equate that to, you know, because I'm adopted, I'm not, you know, biologically the same as them. And so I think that started to create just kind of a little bit of a barrier and feeling like I'm the problem and and things like that. And that 100% was not coming from them. It was coming from what I was placing on myself. But I I think that's kind of when I started to stray. And as I went into my teen years, I just, I felt like I had so much anxiety. And because I felt different, I kind of searched for a place I could belong. And I think I found that with people that were, you know, smoking weed and, and doing other drugs and drinking. And I felt accepted. And so I kind of stayed in that group. And you know, long story short, I just, I started smoking weed and and I started to explore drinking and things like that. And 
uh, I ended up getting kicked out of expelled out of my my high school here in in California. And I think that was just the end of the line. Um, my parents were in communication with an ed consultant um, and a psychiatrist and a pediatrician, and all of them said that sending me away would be the best thing. Um, not only sending me away, um, but having a transport company kidnap me in the middle of the night. And I, you know, I don't blame my parents at all on this. Three professionals told them that this was the best thing to do for their child. And we listen to doctors. I mean, that's what we do, right? We put a lot of faith in them. And, and so, yeah, they, they sent me away to two different facilities. Um, One was uh, Intermountain Children's Hospital in Boise, Idaho for six months. And then the other one was in Northern Montana uh, called Chrysalis. And I was there for about another three years. So about three and a half years I was gone. So, yeah, but it's interesting because there's so many different stories out there when you talk to survivors. Um, and it's amazing how different mine is. I feel like, because my parents and I have an amazing relationship right now and I'm able to talk to them about it. And I feel so incredibly lucky. Um, and yeah, I, the interesting thing is, is that my childhood was what you would expect, you know, a, you know, run of the mill childhood. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I came to that spot. Well, I will jump in and share my story as well. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the stories that you hear from people who end up in these facilities are very similar. Um, most of it is just kind of typical adolescence, like what you would expect someone who's growing into adulthood and trying to find themselves, figure out where they fit in the world, you know, all of those things. So um, my childhood was also relatively typical. Um, I grew up with a single mom and she worked incredibly hard at the time. Uh, When I eventually got to, you know, be around like, I think I was around like 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, And also to mention, I was growing up in San Diego, California. And so uh, at, at around that age, I like got really interested in like the music scene. And that was like my whole life. Like I was into like 70s punk rock. Like I thought that I like I was in love with Sid Vicious, if that gives you like any kind of an idea or reference to like my future dating choices. I don't know. Uh, and so it, it, but I was like so obsessed. And so of course that became like my image. And I started wearing like the band shirts and the Dickies and um, like fishnets and, you know, black eyeliner. And my family was just like outraged, right? They're like, oh my God, she's, this is like Satan's music. You know, she's going down the wrong path, hanging out with the wrong people. And, Um, you know, yeah. So that was like the fear, right? mm -hmm. And uh, at the time though, I think I had watched um, like Almost Famous which is one of my all-time favorite movies and so I was like I'm going to be a music journalist like I'm going to write for Rolling Stone also and I was just so you know obsessed and but they were afraid I was going down the wrong path so they had like a lot of parents and a lot of people got on Google and started searching help for our teen daughter help for our teen help you know and just seeing what resources were out there Well, my mom found this website called teenhelp.com. And so, right, like the most generic, like teenhelp.com. And she was thinking, because this is how it looked, is that this was just like a referral service that could connect you with other, um, you know, support systems Mm -hmm. and so she had talked to them and they were like oh yes we see this all the time we deal with this all the time ma'am and you know if you don't get your daughter somewhere quickly she is going to end up dead or in jail Uh, and and right because they kind of they feed into the fear Mm -hmm. and so my mom, of course, is, you know, had already had like those thoughts in her mind. So she hears that coming from this like, quote, professional, she's thinking, oh, my God, I have to act quick. Mm -hmm. And so at that point in time, um, they had referred me to this boarding school in upstate New York called the Academy at Ivy Ridge. What she didn't know is that the Academy at Ivy Ridge and this website, Teen Help, were both owned by the same organization, so they were owned by a group called WASP, and it was the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs. It sounds terrifying. Yeah. 
and kind yeah. of random. Yeah, like I, what are specialty programs? <laughs> yeah, that could mean so many things. Yeah, like it, I know, it's the most generic organization name, which should tell you that there's obviously something sketchy going yes. on here. Uh, and if you look at their other names, right, like Teen Help LLC, uh, Premier Education Group, right? Like it's all these just like shell LLC uh, companies, which we can maybe another time get into kind of the conspiracy of that. Um, But yeah, so I uh, was also transported. I had uh, uh, two people kick in my bedroom door, uh, locked bedroom door, and they like bum rushed me and they were like, you're under our custody now. If you have anything on you, drop it. And like, I was 14. I had no idea what they were talking about. I was like, if I have anything on me, I think I asked them, I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, drugs. Do you have any drugs? I'm like, no, (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, But yeah, they like forcibly took me to this facility in upstate New York where I would end up staying for two and a half years. Wow. Yeah, that's so far from home. Um, Real quick, my next question for you guys is just if we could touch on some of the experiences at the facilities. So, Meg, if I could toss it back to you real quick, you said you went to two different facilities. Right. So, and one was a hospital. So, I'm just curious, would you consider both to have been abusive or just one or the other? And and how did they differ? I say they were really different. Uh, The first place I went was a, it's called a residential treatment center. So, it was a lockdown facility. Um, I wasn't allowed to leave the entire six months. Um, the doors lock behind you and they can't open unless a staff member opens them for you, even to just change buildings. Um, we were, uh, I don't even know how to explain it, complete control over us. Um, we had motion sensors in the room. Um, so if you move around at night at all to get up, um, they will come in and make sure that you're not doing anything. There was a motion sensor in between the beds so that one patient couldn't harm another patient in the middle of the night and then staff not know. Uh, They had something called a quiet room, the QR, which is a seclusion room. That was a padded room and a bed with nothing else in it. And if you were misbehaving, they would stick you in there for um, as long as it took. Um, I saw kids go in there all day. Uh, No bathroom or anything like that as well. Uh, Other things I saw regularly, like daily, would be um, restraints, um, both chemical restraints um, and actual like sitting on kids, like multiple staff members sitting on kids when they weren't listening. Yeah. Uh, I, it never happened to me, but I think that a lot of the traumas is also not with things happening to you, but you seeing them and witnessing yeah. them and knowing that that kind of thing happens out there in the world. When, like I said, I grew up in a really good family and I had never seen anything like this, any adult ever getting physical with a child. So it was traumatizing. I was sharing rooms with, um, schizophrenics. I, you know, I'm, I wasn't mentally ill, but they kind of labeled everyone as mentally ill. Um, I immediately was, uh, was medicated for bipolar disorder, uh, high, high amounts of medications and I don't have bipolar disorder. So you can imagine what that can do to a child. Um, yeah. So I'd say that that was more, uh, scary, and abusive in the way that I was really witnessing. It was a high amount of control as well, like no free will at all. And then chrysalis was was very different. Um, it was more emotional abuse. Um, you know, they would, there was one thing we did called circle and circle was basically attack therapy and you would get confronted with something and they would go around the circle and they would continue telling you all these things that you do wrong and why you need to change. And, and you're never going to be accepted into life or into the you know society. If you don't change these things or have friends and, uh, it's the method it seemed was to break you down so much that then, then the next day when you feel you know, new, you're more wanting to follow the rules, right? Break you down so that you can almost trust them. It's a very strange thing. Um, I would say there, chrysalis was a very high amount of toxic stress, just unpredictable and unrelenting stress. And I'd say most of my, you know, the, my trauma that I deal with on a daily basis comes from chrysalis. And uh, the two, the two owners, um, one of them, he was, he had favorite girls and he would, you know, everyone wanted to be his favorite. And, but if he didn't like you, you know, you, I basically spent, you know, three years trying to be his favorite, which to a 16 year old, 17 year old girl, that's kind of teaching future relationships on what's okay and what's not okay. So I found myself obviously 
being okay with people and, and loving people still, but were treating me really poorly um, and kind of set up that framework for me. But I'd say that, you know, the, the abuse that happened in that facility was, was very much so emotional. And um, uh, they, they also had a high amount of work that we had to do for the place. You know, we, we cooked all the meals, we cleaned everything. We did all the deep cleaning. We all washed all the cars. We fed all the animals. We, we did everything ourselves. Um, hours and hours of chores a day. Um, I remember one consequence, you know, uh, having, which is a different than a chore. So if you do something wrong, you get a consequence. And, uh, you know, taking a toothpick and a toothbrush and having to go in between of all the wood planks and the wood floor um, of a huge house. So just tedious things like that that we had to do. Um, And I also have, you know, a lot of medical neglect. Um, I have I've had 14 surgeries right now because in my life because of things that happened there but I was too scared to say that I need to go to the doctor or I wasn't allowed to go to the doctor and so I would say that that's one of the ways that it's affected my life too is just um the way that I deal with things when they go wrong in my body is I don't speak up and say this hurts and then I end up with needing emergency surgery um so yeah I mean it's and, and you'll hear from Caroline just how different these programs can be with the types of things that go on. Um, you know, and mine wasn't a WASP. Mine was a private placement program where you actually aren't allowed really to go to um, Chrysalis unless you've been at another placement before. So it's a second placement place because they need someone to screen you to make sure that you're going to do well and conform, you know, so but yeah, I'll pass it on to Caroline and you're going to, you're going to get a very different feel, which is going to get, it's, it's very interesting. Really quick here, but between, I first just want to say, I'm so sorry to both of you for everything that you've been put through. I just had to put that out there. You know, (laughs) I just blanket. I'm so sorry. And then also a quick question that's more specific. Um, what happens to your education when you're at these facilities? Uh, Do you get any type of school? I can speak to that, actually, because that's something from my personal experience. So um, when a lot of times these sorts of schools will have a a fringe accreditation body who will accredit their academic criteria. And so typically, and not to polarize anybody here, but typically that accreditation body is going to have a religious affiliation. Because if you claim to be religiously affiliated, you are exempt from a lot of different kinds of requirements, requirements around um, the content of the educational material, and even exempt from certain requirements such as um, like mandatory reporting of child abuse, Mm -hmm. which is mostly linked to um, types of accreditation, right? So you can imagine if there's no training on reporting child abuse because it's not required by the accreditation body, um, then that can create all different kinds of issues where staff are not reporting or don't know that they should be reporting abuse that's taking place in in these facilities. Um, So my story personally, I had gone to, um, as we know, this facility in upstate New York, and it was all an online schooling program. So I I went, I did Spanish too. I did English comp. I did, you know, history, all the basic things. Um, But unfortunately, what we found out afterwards is that they were not accredited at all. And so all of the schoolwork that I had done for two and a half years um, essentially would not transfer to any other institution. No one would take the credits. Um, and so after that, I went through a period of time where I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do like an independent learning program. I'm going to try to continue my education this way. And it was so extremely challenging, not only because I was unpacking the trauma from the previous two and a half years, um, but having just such a huge um, shift with coming home. And um, there were also, you know, I- issues at home at the time. And so really trying to process everything and continue education was just not practical. Um, so ultimately I ended up leaving school and then had to later on get my GED and, and go to college. And But it's created all kinds of issues. So if you can imagine that we have 120,000 to 200,000 young people every year going through these facilities, that's a good number of people who are not able to continue their education. It's a problem. 
Absolutely. I had no idea it, it was on that scale even before talking to you guys that I've done some limited research on this. But um, Caroline, I had a specific question for you as well um, before we sort of dive into your experiences. Um, you were moved really far away um, from San Diego to New York. Was that uh, I don't want to say culture shock because that seems so minor in comparison to everything else you were going through. Um, but was that a culture shock? Was it strange to be that far away from your parents going through something so traumatic? And Meg, you may have been far away too, but I just really noted that with Caroline because yeah, California to New York is a is a really different, really far place. Yeah, <laughs> just about as far away as you could possibly get and still be in the country. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, it was a huge culture shock because I mean keep in mind I am coming from sunny San Diego like highlights in my hair tan skin like you know fresh ocean breeze kind of vibe and then going to this like in the middle of nowhere in the sticks uh like as far north so okay imagine this so upstate New York a lot of people consider like Albany to be upstate which is like comical Mm -hmm. so um (laughs) this is like eight hours north of New York City Mm -hmm. so it was our facility Mm -hmm. a state highway one row of houses the St. Lawrence River and then Canada okay so we were like again as far north as you could possibly be (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's incredible. And it must've been really cold. We would have inches thick of ice on the windows every winter. Um, but more than that, just to point out to, um, a lot of these facilities will kind of be like in the middle of nowhere. Um, and they do that intentionally. So we were about a hundred and thirty seven miles from the closest major city. And so um, they do that for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. Also, because like if you try to run away, there's you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but also, then what ends up happening is these facilities um, bring in massive revenue, mm-hmm. um, and so they're able to support either through taxes or just through job availability in that area. They end up kind of creating their own like um, financial economy really um in in that area so then you'll have a lot of townspeople who you know will not say anything about this facility or they'll have kind of like a loyalty to them just because there's really no other opportunity wow that is so interesting it's like its own little economy kind of and keeps people quiet um so yeah if you wanted to walk us through some of what you experienced that would be really great yeah so To explain a little bit of this industry, too, because I feel like it's important to know, um, and especially if anyone listening ends up going down the rabbit hole and researching these facilities, you'll find that a lot of us have like the same stories. And when we started coming out about their story, about our stories online, someone actually commented on a post of ours that ended up kind of going like semi-viral and people were saying, oh, I've, I've totally heard other people saying the same story. This is just like copy paste. You know, they're making this stuff up. Um, But it's very similar because all of these facilities really had like the same origin story. And so there was a facility in Utah, is a facility in Utah called Provo Canyon School, which was opened in the early 70s and is actually the topic of our newly released podcast, Trapped in Treatment. So go listen to that. Um, We talk about the history of Provo Canyon School and how um, this industry really became a huge spinoff of that facility. Um, so my experience personally, when I got to Ivy Ridge, I knew immediately that like, this is not a school. I was, I was expecting, I heard I was going to boarding school. I was expecting, I thought I was going to some like prep school. Like this is going to be so fun. I'm going to have a dorm room and roommates and and, like, it's going to be like college is what I was thinking. And the moment that I got there and I saw these like long white cinder block hallways with like fluorescent lights, it felt very institutional and there was like nothing around, no like plush chairs to sit down. Like it was just very institutional and like the smell is something that I will forever remember. Um, And so as soon as I got there, I think I was like, 
hi, I'm Caroline. Nice to meet you. And I was just, I don't know, like I got hit with reality really hard. Um, and so this particular staff member ended up like grabbing me by the arms, dragging me down this hallway. Um, they took me to a bathroom where they strip searched me. They made me squat and cough, uh, which I had no idea why they were making me squat and cough. Cause it was just so beyond where I was at. Um, and I ended up sleeping on a like three inch thick piece of foam um, out in the hallway again under, you know, fluorescent lights. We were never allowed to turn our lights off um, or anything like that. So, you know, they took my shoelaces so I wouldn't run away. Uh, and so like just to give you kind of a, a feeling of the environment, um, we were not allowed to talk. So I couldn't look at you even with our eyes. Like I couldn't look at you and make like eye contact like I see you. Right. Like, yeah, like we weren't allowed to make facial expressions, any kind of nonverbal communication, um, like waving, gesturing, even gesturing your body could be considered nonverbal communication. Um, And all of that was considered considered run plans. They thought that you would, of course, be trying to run away if you're communicating. Um, We weren't allowed to look out windows, look in mirrors. There was no telephone, Internet, TV, music, um, anything like that. Um, And earning, we had to earn a phone call. So in order to talk to your parents and, you know, in order to talk to my mom, I had to earn a phone call. And I think it was about a year before I got my first phone call. So this is not like a week of no phone calls. This is like a very, very long time, um, especially for someone who's, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, and for most of us, you know, being away from home for the very first time. Um, so yeah, no, no talking. Um, it was always very like aware that if you broke the rules, you could be physically restrained and taken to what they call the intervention room, which is really more like a solitary confinement room. Um, and they would have male staff, you know, restrain us. And, and these were big, big guys, big, big old country football playing guys that, you know, it, it really was actually kind of like sport. So, you know, um, it was horrific. The things that you would witness, um, you know, people felt so desperate to get out of there that they would go to any length to leave. So sometimes that uh, meant, well, in one time in particular, there was a a girl who actually threw herself over the stairs um, and, you know, Try was trying to get out, was trying to go to the hospital so she could tell her parents what was going on so she could leave. Um, there were other people who would cheek their medication and take it all at once also to get to the hospital so maybe they could have a phone call so they could say what was going on. Um, I will say I thought I was never going to leave. Like, I literally thought I'm going to be here until, like, infinity. It just felt like it was never ending. Um, and, you know, this type of stuff is being done today. Uh, and what's even more horrific is that we're having kids being sent to these facilities for no other reason than they entered the child welfare system. And so like Cornelius Fredericks, for example, he ended up at a facility, a sequel facility in Kalamazoo, Michigan, for no other reason than his mom died. He entered the child welfare system. He had no one to fall back on, entered the system, ended up being sent out of state from California, out of state to this facility in Michigan. And ultimately, um, he died. He, uh, one day, I'll share this very quickly, um, but he was sitting at a lunchroom table in their cafeteria. He was eating a sandwich and he was, you could kind of tell he was like almost halfway joking with a group of boys at another table. And he, uh, you could just tell by his body language, like he was kind of messing with them. And he took a a little corner of his sandwich, like a little piece of bread that you could barely see. And he kind of like tossed it uh, at them. And um, you can see a staff member turn around and and say something to him. And so he takes another little piece of bread and and tosses it at, at these boys sitting across from him. And uh, at that point, this staff member takes his hand, um, puts it on Cornelius chest, shoves him backwards out of his seat. At that point, seven male staff members pile on top of Cornelius where they stayed on top of him for 12 minutes. Um, When they got off of him, um, he was not moving. And they thought he was joking and they were like, kind of kicked him. And they're like, come on, Cornelius, come on. Um, You know, get up, man, get up. You're just playing. Stop playing with us. 
and um, his body was limp and lifeless. And they waited another 12 minutes before they had called uh, for law enforcement and and for emergency services. Um, So, you know, right now those deaths um, are not always reported. And so this is a story that caught media attention, but we don't actually know how many young people are dying in these facilities right now. No, it's really mind blowing to me because when you guys tell your story, I'm like, oh, this must have been something that happened more back in the day because people who dressed a little bit alternative were not understood as well as they are today. But that's definitely seems like a misconception. So um, thank you for educating us on that. And um, tell us a little bit about your work with Unsilenced and what you guys do and how you continue to educate through that organization. So Unsilenced came about after Paris Hilton came out with her documentary, This is Paris, where she talks about her experience uh, with at, at Provo Canyon School. So she was sent to that facility that I mentioned, all the other facilities kind of spun off of. So Provo Canyon has some pretty in, insane things that they were doing behind closed doors. So, you know, after we saw this getting so much media attention within our survivor community, like we were all kind of waiting to see what would happen from this. Um, I will mention that there has been a large number of survivors who have been working on this issue well before that documentary came out. They've been around for decades asking for people to pay attention to this issue. And so I just want to, you know, acknowledge all of the work that's been done that has really led up to this point. Um, So, you know, Our organization, most of us are made up of people who were privately placed into these facilities. So parents who are caregivers who were actively looking for help for their their children and ultimately sent them to a facility. Um, But we recognize that the industry has changed a lot since most of us have have been there. And so we really also want to recognize in this movement that, you know, there's child welfare kids being sent there. There's juvenile justice. There's even special education. Kids are being sent to these facilities through their IEP programs. And so our goal is to do a couple of things. Our goal is to, uh, number one, make sure that we're able to pass policy that is going to prevent these types of facilities from flourishing and from taking kids um, through the public pipelines and also to be able to create a culture of transparency where parents can see, you know, what is actually happening at these facilities because none of that is really public right now. So that's one goal. Um, And then the second goal is to be able to provide alternatives What can we develop within our communities that can prevent families from relying on this industry or from systems relying on this industry? Um, And and that is, you know, it's going to take time, Um, but I think we're in a good place. Meg, I want to hand it off to you because I didn't even start to touch on the research aspect of things. Yeah. So, you know, within Unsilence, we have three distinct divisions that we really focus on because we feel like it, in order to make an effect, any effect on this industry, which we call the troubled teen industry, it has to be in a multitude of ways. So the first one is obviously through policy, right? Policy change. And uh, Caroline is doing an amazing job with that uh, and her work with Paris in bringing that bill into Congress. Um, But the other one is investigative research. And I'm super excited about investigative research. We are going to be starting a research project soon. We've already started kind of thinking about um, how it's going to be structured that is going to look at really studying our entire life, right, of the survivor. What happened before the program? How many programs did you go to? How long were you away? What kind of abuse did you um, go through during in these programs? Um, And not just asking about the abuse, because I think that a lot of uh, people, when they hear the word abuse or sexual abuse or physical abuse, uh, emotional abuse, they say, oh, no, 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 I, I didn't go through that. You know, um, asking about specific behaviors, you know, like, did, were you ever asked to shower in front of staff? Yes. Okay. Well, that is a specific type of abuse. Um, and so being able to kind of cut that down into little pieces and then studying what happens after the program too, because I think that's something that 
we really want to understand so we know how to help us help our you know our community and asking about you know what kind of chronic conditions do you still suffer from like i have a chronic condition uh, actually quite a few um and i know a lot of survivors that struggle with um, their physical health because of the toxic stress that they were under and their and their cptsd so we really want to understand the lifetime of the survivor so we can figure out how to best help us and also stimulate more research so that we can have structures to help us kind of like the VA helps the veterans, right? And we really want to be able to even have a scholarship fund down the road that's for survivors that are needing help or uh, needing help covering co-pays for mental health or doctor co-pays or stuck in an abusive relationship. We want to have a scholarship fund to be able to provide you know, survivors with that. And, and then we have our self-advocacy. And what we're really focusing on self-advocacy is creating a massive, massive amount of resources to give to our survivors when, and parents, right? Yeah. Um, and the survivor of every level, the survivor that just got out of the program, all the way up to the survivor that's been out for 30 or 40 years. We really want to provide as many resources as we can. Everything from um, if you're struggling with mental health, okay, we want to figure out mental health providers in each of your states and all the states are covered. Um, if you're having trouble with filing for disability, okay, let's, let's look at resources for that. LGBTQ, okay, let's look at your state. Let's figure out resources for you. We really want our survivors to feel really well supported throughout their life and throughout their their journey through, um, you know, kind of dealing with the trauma, which brings us to also a future project of ours that we're working on with um, some other trauma therapists who are actually survivors themselves, which is important, I think, because a lot of us are kind of traumatized by th at the hands of our therapists and been therapized at one point in time. So you got to be careful with that. But we're working toward coming up with a, a program to be able to teach mental health professionals how to have clients that are survivors of institutional child abuse. We think that's really important because I can't tell you how many survivors I've talked to that you end up spending four or five sessions just explaining what you've been through. Mm -hmm. And so they can understand it because most of their minds are blown and it, it, it wastes a lot of time. Yeah. And most importantly, you're talking about trauma that is just going to make everything worse and you're not ready to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing we really want to focus on. So, and it wastes money too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all those sessions yeah, those where you're just <laughs> opening old wounds. Yeah. You're just racking up money. I know. Well, it know. sounds like, so it sounds like your goal is primarily of course, to close these organizations, but then secondly, to provide healing to the community. Is that right? Correct. Absolutely. And to help families uh, from ever getting to that point. And, you know, in young people who have di been displaced from their families for whatever reason, to give them access to resources, to education, to life skills, all of the things that they need so they don't end up in an institution. So um, do you guys want to touch on Trapped in Treatment, the podcast, and kind of tell us more about that? Because obviously, if they're listening here, they're a podcast listener. So let's get them over to Trapped in Treatment. Yes, definitely go check out Trapped in Treatment. We had so much fun making this. Um, it's going to take you on a journey. So I'm, I'm one of the hosts of Trapped in Treatment, and uh, my co-host, Rebecca Mellinger, is actually Paris Hilton's impact producer. So she got really involved after the documentary when Paris decided, like, we need to figure out how we can create change here. And uh, Rebecca you know, saw the documentary and she was so moved by it because she had uh, actually grown up in Connecticut and some of her friends had disappeared overnight and ended up going to these facilities. So she kind of knew of it from this other side. So Entrapped in Treatment, we take you on the experience of what happens before you're sent, the transport, being admitted and going through the intake process, what it's like being there. Uh, and then we end up in, uh, you know, what happens after, like, what is life like once you leave the facility and you come home and you're just expected to carry on. Mm -hmm. And we do talk about a lot of the long-term effects that we see as far as many survivors having a predominance of complex PTSD, having nightmares, um, being diagnosed with everything from borderline personality disorder to, you know, long-term chronic illness. Uh, and so, you know, it is, yeah, it's really an incredible podcast. We have 
uh, also some really awesome guests. We have survivor stories. We've got um, politicians like Senator Mike McKell and a shout out to Senator uh, Sarah Gelser-Bluen. Um, they are, have both been champions for this issue. And so they're on, on there as well, giving kind of that uh, policy perspective, like how is this legal? How is this possible? I think that's a common question. But yeah, it yeah. follows the story of Provo Canyon School and, and how that birthed an industry. So go listen, go check it out. It's on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's wherever you uh, can stream podcasts. I cannot wait to listen because I actually have so many more questions than I could fit into this podcast episode. Um, I guess one of my main questions, though, that I'm going to go ahead and go a little off script and ask you guys, like, how do they decide that you're done with treatment and, like, release you back to your family? Oh, Yeah. Um, Good well, question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of different for all different programs. Uh, to be honest, the, the two programs I was in, it was different for each. For the residential treatment center, you have a treatment program that you have in the beginning, and you know you're not going to get released until those, you know, down the sheet that those things listed are completed as far as your treatment. But the interesting thing is, it's not about what you think you've completed. It's about their assessment of what you have completed. So if you're struggling in any kind of way, they'll won't check it off. I mean, in a residential treatment center for six months is extremely, extremely long time. This is not a short term stabilization period or diagnosing period, right? six months it took me to get through my treatment plan. Um, but with, with chrysalis, you have a very, so what it is, is it's phases, right? So you have a level system, um, which is very common in these kind of programs. And in order to get past, you know, and, uh, past to past level one to level two, you have to be able to be trusted. Now there's, they can bullet point it on a paper for you in order to get to level two, what you need to do. But to be honest, like it's all up to them on whether they think you should get it or not. Um, and the littlest thing can derail that. Um, I remember being so scared if I went into a circle and I did something wrong and I got grilled in circle, I was so scared. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to get level two now. Um, so little, the littlest things can get your level kind of pushed off or taken away. Um, and so we had level two, which is trust, Level three, I don't even know what they called it, but level three was a big one. And then you graduate. And when you graduate, I say that in quotes, right? It's what they think, you know, you're at that level. And usually after you graduate, you're allowed to leave the program. Um, I knew quite a few people that graduated and stayed at the program. They will stay on for a while as a graduate. And um, oftentimes people don't graduate. So I'm actually a graduate of the program. It took me a really long time to get through it. And they kind of convinced me, you know, you don't leave until you're a graduate. Don't leave until you're ready. I stayed until I was 18 and a half. So I could have left for six months after I I had the option to, um, which is, you know, obviously really sad to look back at, but it shows just how brainwashed we were into thinking that that's what we were supposed to be doing because that's what they were telling us to do. Um, So it's kind of a long way of answering your question, but uh, a short way would be to say when they think it's time, when, when they allow you to, um, and really it's when you get good enough at showing whether you actually are not just showing that you're working on yourself, even if it's fake. And a lot of people did, they faked it because even if, what if you didn't have anything to work on, you have to pretend to be working on something. Otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. So it's all in their control, to be honest. So can I share actually one of the stupidest things that I got in trouble for? Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time I left, just keep this in mind, by the time that I left, I had been there the second longest out of everybody in the facility, wow. including the girls side and the boys side. So I had been there for a really really long time. And I had been what they called in my program, they called it being on probation. So if you got like in trouble for something, um, they could put you on probation, which means that, um, and again, we had a level system as well. So anything that was level four and above was considered like upper level and you had privileges. Like you could wear makeup, you could wear your hair down because we had to wear our hair in a braid. And so different things like that. So if you, um, you would lose your levels and they could like knock you back down at any point in time to level one or level two, and you would start all over again. Right. So it's terrifying. Cause you know, that that's your ticket home. Mm-hmm. And with me being 14, I'm like, I, I gotta get out of here. 
so one time I got in trouble at this point again, we were, I was allowed to wear uh, makeup. I had earned that privilege and, um, on my makeup brush, my initials had rubbed off. I had written them on there with Sharpie. Everything had to be initialed. Everything had to be labeled and my initials had rubbed off and they considered that to be an illegal item. And I lost all my points and levels and it probably tacked on a good like three or four months more to my program. And so, and keep in mind too, like my mom is hearing on the other side of this, like Caroline was caught with an illegal item today. You know, we're very disappointed. Oh my gosh. And Right. Like parents wow. are thinking like, oh my God, like she wow. had a knife. She but, had yeah. a like, you know. <laughs> and, um, but that's the way that they kind of make this stuff so serious. Um <clears throat> So yeah, I was known for like being on probation quite a bit. <laughs> I was forgetful. I would like lose my water bottle somewhere and then they'd be like, this is, you know, what they actually called neglect of property. You're neglecting your property uh, by leaving it in another room. Like I know. You're a child. So now, I feel like, <laughs> now I feel like I need to come forward and say the stupidest thing that I ever got. Yeah. Okay. Because this is, this is a fun game and I totally dig yes. it. Um, okay. So. I had been there probably like six months at Chrysalis and I was feeding the horses and working with them. I turned around, the horse kicked me square in my back on, on my lumbar spine and it hurt yeah. so incredibly bad. I yeah. started freaking out. I couldn't oh move. I was God. so shocked and scared. They uh, rushed me to a hospital that was a, 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 an hour and a half away, which I'm surprised they actually took me to the hospital and uh the doctor at in Kalispell hospital very small hospital um northern montana and they did an x-ray and they're like you're fine everything's good you're normal well because nothing was wrong for the rest of my stay i was known as being dramatic the entire time and i suffered from back pain ever since yeah, and you know I I, but i couldn't say anything about it because mm. you know i'm dramatic yeah. right and it uh, there was literally circles for three hours about how I'm dramatic and it was crazy fast forward uh about 11 years ago no 12 years ago I had to have a double spinal fusion because my L5 was just floating around unattached oh. right well there's the cause of the pain right yeah. but it just took an MRI to find it and so that is probably one of the stupidest things I've ever gotten in trouble for which was uh getting upset and getting hurt by a horse and forever being labeled as dramatic. I love how we're like, I, let's tell, let's tell a funny story. This one's hilarious, and then it's like traumatizing. Yeah, but I'm laughing, really? right? That's all that matters. I know. Well, I, I feel like you guys probably get to a point where you have to laugh about it because yeah, it's just so insane. Yeah, you do. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, that, this would be a great series for you guys for social media or something like that <laughs> sure. on stories, just interviewing survivors about their craziest or, or, you know, most insane story. Um, well, thank you guys for sharing. And then I wanted to ask you if there's someone who's listening right now who maybe is, has gone through this and is recently out or somehow if they could possibly be listening during this time, um, what advice would you have for them going forward? I'll probably go on the more emotional side because when I think about people that and kids that are still stuck in that, it, it really tears me up inside. So I'd have to say, if I could say anything to them right now, it's you're not alone and we see you, we know what you're experiencing and we'll be here for you when you're done. And all you have to do is reach out or just an email or a phone call away and uh, come find your community. Definitely reach out to us. It makes such a world of difference being able to talk to other people who just know. They already know. Um, I know after I had left the facility and gone back to a normal high school, I felt like I am so alone. No one will ever understand what I just went through. And it created a lot of issues for me. And so being able to be with people in a space where it's like, you don't even have to say anything. We already know what you've been through. We've been through it too. Um, it, it, it creates a sense of normalcy that is so validating and healing. Um, I also want to say though, um, reach out for help as well. Like we have a network 
of trauma therapists who are also survivors. And so getting that help uh, where you're actually going through therapy, I mean, this is like, this is serious trauma. It's not just stuff that like a little bit of journaling is going to help. Sure, that's great. Not, you know, naysaying journaling, do that all day. Uh, but, But really seeking professional help who can help you start to process and unpack what happened to you um, is just invaluable. So um, you can find us on on silence.org. We're on Instagram, TikTok. Amazing. Yeah. And I will link all those resources in the show notes for you guys so that everyone can reach out. Everyone can listen to their podcast with one quick link. So um, thank you guys so much for sharing your story. I'm sure this is heavy work. So I really appreciate you um, opening up and sharing as openly as you did. So thank you for the important work you do. Thank you, Annie. It has been an absolute joy to be here. Definitely connect with us. Go to our website, social media. Um, We'd love to hear your stories or if you're just interested in finding out more. Um, There's a lot of resources on our site. Uh, So enjoy going down the rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron of our podcast. For $7.99 a month, you can unlock tons of perks like breaking news text messages so that you're never out of the loop, tons of bonus episodes are already up there ready for you to binge, and a discussion board full of networking opportunities and much more. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash sugar-free media today to become a patron. This is the best way to support our show. Our patrons make news du jour possible. But a couple other ways to support our podcast are rate and review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen, share on your social media, you have influence, tell your friends, family, and colleagues that you love news du jour and why you listen. You can also follow us on social media under sugarfreemedia.co on Instagram just sugar-free media, all one word on TikTok, and sugar-free underscore media on Twitter. We also have a weekend newsletter called Dreamers Digest that's full of dreamy content recommendations for your weekend and a life update from yours truly. Sign up today on our website, www.sugarfreemedia.co. Our music is by Joey Lavoy and Nicholas Foster. Our cover art is by Hannah Pierce Photography. Our sugar-free media logo is by Katherine Jezik Designs. Any twinkling or little footsteps you might hear in the background are by my dog, Rhett. He's a rescue pup and always records with me. We appreciate you listening and look forward to telling you about the news again next time on News Du Jour. Broadcasting from Oh